This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. Today's episode is with Beth Ivanelli. Beth is a registered nurse and board certified lactation consultant with nearly 28 years of experience in the field of maternal child health. She's worked as a labor and delivery nurse, postpartum nurse, and patient educator in the hospital setting, and as the coordinator of newborn services and lactation in a pediatric office. Most recently, she worked at Breastfeeding Resources in Stratford, Connecticut with Dr. Christina Smiley. She's also taught thousands of parents and provided staff training and development for nurses, doctors, and nutritionists. She has authored hundreds of articles and consulted for websites and worked as a content developer and online expert. She has collaborated and advised on content for The Newborn Channel, NBC Universal, Motherhood Maternity, Disney, and more. She has mentored many now IBCLCs as they prepared for certification. Beth is now the owner of Milk Street Lactation Support Center in East Norwalk, Connecticut. Milk Street is a storefront community-based center that provides prenatal education and postpartum support and education. Before she became a nurse, she was in the fashion business in New York City. She was also a singer and she has had her own band for more than 20 years. In today's episode, we will walk you through how to prepare for breastfeeding, what to expect during the first few weeks, tips and tricks, and a discussion about milk undersupply and oversupply. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And I have Beth Ivanelli here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So as we were chatting in the beginning, breastfeeding, just from my own perspective, has been, it it was probably one of the most difficult journeys for me in all of motherhood. (laughs) And I feel like people don't talk about it that way. It's just like, oh, here's your baby, let's breastfeed. And, you know, there's just so many hurdles, you know, you, you give birth and you're like, okay, that was the hardest part. It's just this beginning into if you made the choice to feed your baby this way, it can be a rocky road and especially your first time around not knowing what to expect. So I, I'm hoping that this episode can can give light into what you can expect. But even if you've you've done this three times, I mean, even with my fourth baby, there were things that happened with that baby that didn't happen the first three times. So it's every experience is unique with each one of your children. And it's it's a wild ride. I know that for some it might come easily, but for many it doesn't. So, and and that can be very normal. So, 
I hope that this can just kind of normalize some of those things and give you some tools in your in your toolkit to use once you experience the uh, love of breastfeeding because it really is a cool experience. So Beth, if you don't mind starting, I would love to start from the very beginning of, okay, you're in your third trimester. You've made this decision. I really want to breastfeed my baby. If I can, what should you be doing to prepare to breastfeed? I think one of the most important things is is educating yourself. Now, of course, we know that because of the internet, there is a wealth of information, sometimes a little bit too much information for moms. But I think having an appointment with an IBCLC, taking a class, just to get your brain wrapped around how the whole thing works, you know, milk production wise. So you kind of start to learn the language and you can get an idea of how things ought to play out. And if they don't, what I, how I've been kind of framing a lot of my prenatal classes is if it doesn't seem like it's starting to like it's working out in the hospital, because a lot of moms think I've got to get this figured out in like two days. And if I don't, then it's all over and my I failed. But what I like to try to give moms are tools and plan B's and plan C's that they can use to maintain their milk supply, make sure the baby's getting fed until they can see some skilled help. Because a lot, you know, like I said, a lot of moms feel like if if it's not working in the hospital, then they're done for. So I think that's really important to get that kind of understanding prenatally. Another thing that I talk about a lot prenatally now is the concept of prenatal hand expression. This is something that is becoming more known and more popular. This started mainly with high risk women who were at higher risk for having babies with low blood sugar, women with gestational diabetes, a baby that we know is going to be born prematurely, a very large baby, a very small baby. And those babies are at higher risk for formula supplementation, which can kind of start the cascade of mom feeling like her milk isn't good enough. So starting to do prenatal hand expression and collection of that colostrum starting around 37 or 38 weeks can empower the mom to understand that, hey, there's milk in here. And I do have milk because milk starts forming in the second trimester. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So a few questions off of that. The first, is there like a website like nationally that can where you can find like free classes near you or, you know, how does if somebody is listening and they're like, OK, I really want to get into these classes, like where would they go to find some near them? You know, I think a lot of moms, you know, recommend classes to each other. Go to the ILCA website, the International Lactation Consultants Association. They might have some lactation consultants in your area, but certainly most moms are on Instagram and can find people in their area. And I think really it's that organic word of mouth way that moms can connect. I know that in in my business, you know, my office that I recently opened I am getting referrals. Oh, my cousin saw you. My neighbor saw you. I saw uh, your post on Instagram. And sometimes it just, or my doctor told me about you. So I think, you know, starting with your doctor's office, if you can't find anybody to see if they have anybody they recommend, asking other friends that have recently given birth, if they've had a good experience with lactation support. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. Certainly starting with a Google search for your area is a good place to start, but I I feel like it's more, more women talk to each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, in my OBGYN office, there was like a billboard like in the bathroom, you know, Mm -hmm, and I feel mm -hmm. like those billboards, if you look around on there, like sometimes there's like little flyers on there and things like that. So yeah, kind of diving into that. Yeah. I know. I was just going to say, I definitely have brought my business cards 
all over Fairfield County. And, I, you know, I, I asked moms how they found me. And she said, I actually picked your card up while I was sitting in the waiting room of my OB's office. So it can happen in a variety of ways how people can discover, you know, support. Now, the other question I have for you is if somebody decides, you know, they've given birth and they need more help with a lactation consultant, and this has been my experience where, you know, it was not covered by insurance is like, do you accept insurance? How does insurance work? I mean, I know it's going to vary, obviously, plan to plan and even state to state and things like that. But what has your experience been with like coverage as, as far as that goes? So I have recently been credentialed with Aetna, which took about six months. It's not for the faint of heart. And there's a, a, lo- a large concentration of Aetna families here in, in lower Fairfield County. So I have started accepting Aetna and they cover up to six visits. So moms do not have to lay out any money. I you know, file the claims for them. If anybody other than Aetna right now is considered out of network in my practice, and I provide them with an invoice and a super bill, and they can then submit for reimbursement to their own. Yeah. And I have a really good biller that works with, with me. So if moms need some support or help with coding, things like that. Now, I know there are, there are plenty of um, you know, lactation consultants that may be office-based in an OBGYN office or a pediatrician office that it may be covered by insurance. And there are other other practices that accept multiple types of insurance through the lactation network and through some other nationwide networks. This is the model that I've chosen to start with and we'll see if it changes, but right now it's, you know, it's been working pretty well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I actually, and I I should mention this because not many people have experienced this or know about this, but in my pediatrician's office, one of the APRNs who sees children also was a lactation consultant, which was a beautiful situation because I would bring in my newborn and I would also be able to see her at the same time and covered by insurance. So that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. So you could call your pediatrician's office and just ask if anybody in the office is, you know, a consultant and, and do that route. So that was great. Yeah, actually I did for, for five years, I ran a local, the lactation department and newborn services of a large multi-specialty pediatric group here in, in Norwalk and mothers loved it. I, I was their first point of contact when they came for that first pediatric visit after discharge from the hospital. I saw them, whether they were breastfeeding or bottle feeding or doing a combination, I worked with them to do that initial weight check and check on jaundice and feed feeding and mom's mental health and all those things that need to be addressed early on. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So you're in the hospital, your baby's born and you're trying to get this baby to latch on? What are your like first few tips as far as getting baby to latch on? Do you immediately, I know that they, you know, some hospitals, uh, you know, my, my second, third, fourth time around, I just asked for, you know, lactation right away and was able to get them in because I had such a hard time my first child that I, I really wanted to be prepared and I wanted to get off on the right foot. I had severe fissures like with my first baby and I really never recovered. <laughs> so latching for me was like so like it was just so important because if if you get that latch and, and you do that same latch and it's the wrong latch for two days of feeding, it's going to be a really long road of recovery. <laughs> so what are your suggestions for for that? Well, one thing that I've been including in in all my prenatal classes for the last many years is the concept of baby led latching that 
you know, kind of harnessing that mammalian instinct that babies have, just like puppies and kittens and all other small mammals, that they have that instinct to latch if we can provide the right conditions for them to latch, rather than thinking I need these pillows and I need to master master football hold, cradle hold, mm-hmm. seat, you know, hold the breast with <laughs> a C or uh, with a U. <laughs> Hanging from the ceiling. Exactly. Rather <laughs> than just, you know, putting the baby on your chest and allowing them contact with you. So, you know, when babies are latching, you know, they rely on their sense of smell and the the sense of touch, you know, so having their cheek in contact with mom's chest that elicits that rooting reflex, which is where babies feel sensation around their mouth and kind of lower cheek. And then they start to rub around and open their mouth or gape. And then they start looking for the breast. And they have enough strength, like neck control, head control, to be able to search and latch to that breast without us sitting up and using a pillow and holding the baby. Like if mom can just relax and lay back. And there was a study done in Italy, and I can't quote it specifically, but what it kind of... Uh, proved or confirmed my personal findings in my own practice, because I still do work per diem at at Greenwich Hospital doing bedside lactation. And so it's my go-to when I'm either training a new nurse or working with a new mom, saying this will make both of your lives easier, is just put the baby on your chest and, and recline back and watch the magic happen, because it takes the pressure off. If we flip the narrative from the mom saying, I have to latch the baby, to the baby knows how to latch. I just need to be the supervisor. I need to create create the right conditions so that the baby can achieve the latch. And commonly, and most often when babies are allowed to calmly latch and find and root around, they're searching with a wide open mouth. And that wide open mouth is the secret to happiness with the latch, getting that deep mouthful of breast is going to prevent a lot of nipple pain and nipple injury. And it'll also help to encourage good stimulation for mom's breasts. So her milk production can get what, you know, it needs stimulation wise, and the baby will maximize their, their intake if they have a deeper latch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, how do you know once baby does latch mm-hmm. now, you know, of course, the first couple of times you do this could be painful. How do you know something's, you know, painful, but still the right latch or it's painful and, oh, I need to adjust something. Yeah. Well, I usually explain to mom that, you know, there is going to be some discomfort. I think a lot of times the messaging says breastfeeding should never hurt. (laughs) And I think that that's kind of leading moms down the wrong path. And so if they have any pain, then they kind of start to panic. But so I think discomfort, tenderness may be normal, but pain where you're curling your toes and getting tense or feel like you need to grip the side rail of your bed, that's not normal. And that's not, you know, it's it's not the concept of your nipples have to toughen up. You know, pain is our body's way of telling us there's something not right. And there's no sense in playing the hero and thinking I just have to, you know, white, white knuckle it through this. So it shouldn't feel like a chomp. It shouldn't feel like a bite. It shouldn't feel like a pinch. It it should feel strong and rhythmic. And there should be a certain kind of roundness to it rather than chomping and biting. The the nipple shouldn't look pinched or creased when the baby comes off. You should be able to get to the place where as the baby's sucking in this effective way that you can hear swallows and, you know, kind of 
even the newest mom, the least experienced mom can tell when it's working and when it's not. When asked, because a lot of moms feel like they don't have the, um, inst- not the instinct, the they, they feel like they don't have uh, the ability to say this isn't working because they see the nurses and the lactation consultants saying it looks good. But if the mom, if it's hurting, so I usually tell moms, if you have four people tell you it looks like a good latch, but it hurts, then it's, it's not a good latch. Because it can look look good from the from the perspective of the provider, but if the mom is experiencing pain, then we need to take a closer look at what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Now, is one of the most common issues with latching just like a shallow latch? Because that, I mean, that was just the case for me, but I can imagine. That yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think shallow latch is definitely, you know, one of one of the more common, you know, issues or or speed bumps, if you will, for, you know, getting a good comfortable latch and getting good milk transfer. Certainly there can be other factors that can impact the baby's ability to achieve a deep latch. If a baby, if mom has had a long labor with pushing, if mom's delivery was with a vacuum extraction, if the baby is breech, if the baby has a tight neck or tight jaw as a result of these things, that can make it challenging for babies to latch. Tongue tie can also be something that can get in the way of of an effective latch. So this is where having you know a skilled lactation consultant that can see these nuanced issues and can help mom address them and figure out what the next course of action is to deal with relieving tightness or just working with things the way that they are at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Now, I heard you mention pillows quite a bit. I had all the pillows with my first and then by the fourth, I had nothing. <laughs> like I just used nothing for breastfeeding, nothing, not a cover, not, nothing, zero. And that, well, really, I mean, all the baby stuff, we just, we just nixed, you know, 75% of it and just, you know, gave it to other people. <laughs> We're like, we don't need any of this. So what are your thoughts on, on pillows? Like, do you suggest that every, you know, person who's breastfeeding for the first time goes out and gets one? Or do you think it's totally unnecessary? No, I don't, I don't think it's necessary. I think maybe if a mom has twins, it can be very, very helpful, you know, to support them. But I think, what happens oftentimes with the breastfeeding pills. Now I think you can have pillows around to support your elbow or something, you know, so that you feel comfortable. So you're not straining your body. But oftentimes what happens with breastfeeding pillows is they bring the baby up very high, which leads to mom hiking her breast up to reach the baby's mouth. And then if you let go of your breast and it drops even slightly, it can pull and kind of make it slide out of there. So going with the physiology and structure of women's breasts, most women's breasts kind of point down a little bit. And so bringing the baby to your lap and meeting the ba- meet having the baby meet the breast where it is without moving the breast a ton, without sticking your hand under and hiking it way up again, because that lift then forces the baby to hold on to that pressure of the lifted breast. Right. I don't know no, if that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So what are your thoughts? This is kind of a random question, but what are your thoughts on APNO cream? I mean, I, like, so this was like a lifesaver for me. I ended up using it with all four of mine because again, I was just covered in cuts and abrasions and less fissures and all kinds of things. And it just helped my healing time so much. And with my fourth, I ended up asking for it like right off the bat when I delivered. And the second I I could feel when I was about to get like a laceration into my nipple and I would just, I just put it on there and it was gone and, you know, 24 hours and gone. So it was just like such a lifesaver for me. But I also know that, you know, 
given what's in it, it can break down tissue. So, you know, you wouldn't want to lose use it long term. But like, what are your thoughts on it? So APNO, for those that don't know what it is, it's called it's all purpose nipple ointment. And it's kind of a cocktail of a few different ointments. One is a steroid, one is antifungal, the other has kind of an antibiotic property. In some cases, they might add a fourth ingredient, which is like a powdered ibuprofen to help with pain, but usually the steroid component can really help with pain. It, you know, APNO is something that's best used short term, you know, to, to get that healing started. You know, unfortunately, sometimes I have worked with moms that are seeing me maybe a month after someone gave them an APNO prescription and they've been using it daily, multiple, multiple times daily for pain without getting it addressed. You know, in some cases, you know, a well-meaning, you know, provider will say, well, here's this great ointment and it feels amazing when your nipples are hurting, but it doesn't necessarily address the root cause of why did you get there in the first place? So I think anytime a mom is given a prescription, she should also be given a referral to someone to help kind of monitor and supervise. In some cases, just before it gets really bad, you might just need mupirocin, which is one of the ingredients in in the APNO. Certainly, it doesn't have the steroid component, but it does have an antifungal antibiotic property to it. So sometimes that's that's enough. Just using a, a plain old mupirocin ointment can be helpful in you know healing the, you know, the injured nipple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I only ever used it for, you know, I would use it for like a day, you know, until it felt better. And then of course was like, okay, well, I, the reason why I had to use that was because my latch is incorrect, you know, like, and we, we have to fix that, but yeah. Okay. So I think that that kind of covers everything that I wanted to talk about. What are the other most like common issues that you see, like within that first couple week period that might need to be fixed? I think, the the understanding that babies are not on a schedule. Let me see. The, the most common things that bubble up for me that I hear constantly is that parents ask, how do I get the baby on a schedule? How do I get the baby to stop being so gassy? And why does the baby want to feed so frequently? And so I usually tell parents when they ask about a schedule, I, you know, I kind of jokingly, but respectfully say that, you know, babies don't wear watches. They don't follow a schedule. And, you know, learning flexibility and having an understanding about the way human babies feed, it's not so schedule and it's not like something that you can track in an app and go, okay, it's time to feed. You know, I mean, some cases you have to understand that, oh, it's three hours and the baby hasn't woken up. I need to wake the baby. So having, having that schedule reminder is helpful and making sure you're meeting the goals of enough feedings in a 24 hour period, but not trying to make the baby be on a schedule because that just sets baby and parents up for feeling like they're both doing something wrong. If the baby's not following this, this, this random schedule that was set up by adults. (laughs) Well, and, and I, you know, every day is different. I feel like babies will cluster feed for one day and then the next day they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm going to, you know, eat every three hours instead of every hour today. And, and yeah, I mean, after four babies, I never, I mean, I was so lax with that last one, you know, it was like, okay, we'll eat whenever you want, like, who cares, you know, but yeah, it's, it's really, I can, it's very hard with that first baby because you just, you want to do everything right. So you feel like, oh, a schedule would help us both, you know, but it's in hindsight, it's like, well, that's the last thing you want to do for yourself because you're just setting yourself up for failure. And there's just so much 
uh, you put so much pressure onto yourself with that first one because you want everything to go this perfect way. And it's just, yeah, it's not going to be that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think when I work with parents, I try to explain because a lot of parents are like, okay, tell me what to do. And they're writing down one, two, three, four, five. And I say, okay, just put your pen down for a minute and just understand that all the things I'm telling you are not rules. They are guidelines, you know, because rules, you know, are made to be broken. Guidelines, guidelines give you flexibility to move and flow and to respond to your baby. And so I used to work with Dr. Christina Smiley at Breastfeeding Resources in Stratford, and she's a real guru in the field of breastfeeding medicine. She actually was the first, she opened the first breastfeeding medicine clinic in the United States 27 years ago in in Stratford. And, you know, I had the the good fortune of working with her for the last five years before I opened my own practice, she just retired. And the thing she used to say was, you know, the two most important things are that the baby's getting fed, that mom is getting the adequate stimulation she needs to make milk, and that you're both pretty happy about it. You know, mom, mom isn't, you know, mom isn't crying and curling her toes and having, you know, bleeding nipples, and the baby isn't stressed and tense you know, the goal is for both of you to get what you need because the, again, the baby needs to be fed, but mom needs to get adequate stimulation so that the baby can get fed. And a lot of moms think it, that if they have challenges with low production or a slow onset of that bigger volume, that, that they are somehow damaged goods. Like it's their, their fault. And I try to explain that it's, it's a two person dance you know, mom's body needs that stimulation from the baby so that she can have all the hormonal benefits she needs as a result of that stimulation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk more about milk production. So what is one of the most common myths about milk production? I think one of the things that moms say is I don't have any milk, especially in the first couple days when the breasts are in that colostrum phase. They say I have to wait for my milk to come in or the baby's hungry because I don't have any milk. So that's where I think going back to that prenatal hand expression can help moms believe and see that there's milk there and understand the physiology of a baby that they're well hydrated when they're born and that their stomach capacity is very small and it matches what mom's production is so I think that I've got to wait until my milk come in comes in I've been trying to change the 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 wording of that instead of saying when your milk comes into when your volume increases Mm -hmm. because I think saying when your milk comes in makes you think that there was nothing there to start with yeah yeah so I'm trying to say when your volume increases between day two and day four so that's one and then the other is that they won't make enough milk you know especially if there's been a family history of other women in the family struggling with breastfeeding like my mother said she didn't make enough milk so I probably won't or my sister didn't make enough milk but I won't and so then we have to kind of break down, well, are these what their their situations were very unique to them and they don't have to be the same for you. Let's talk more. Tell me more about that. And so we can find out kind of what happened and what we can do differently to promote a good, robust milk production. In that, you know, two to four day period when your milk, your volume is starting to increase, how do you know after that period if your baby, how do you know that they're satisfied? How do you know that the the milk that you're making is enough for your baby? Are there going to be signs that baby is not getting enough? Like what would some of those signs be? 
Yeah. So this, some of the signs would be decreased urine or stool output. Baby is fussy and tense or the opposite, very lethargic and sleepy and not waking for feeds. So the way that I, and waking, you know, that's one of the reasons we have moms go to the pediatrician, you know, a day or two after discharge so we can closely monitor baby's waking. So from the mom's perspective, you know, the things that we want to look at are is the baby feeding at least eight times in a 24 hour period? Does the latch feel comfortable, strong, rhythmic, productive? Can mom hear swallows when the baby's at the breast? Does the baby go from tense with flexed arms and tight little fists to very loose and relaxed with open palms and, and loose arms? Do they seem content? Do they have good diaper counts? And again, the, the weight is kind of that last, that last piece and trying to help moms understand that cluster feeding is a normal part of it because when the first cluster feed happens, usually in the second night of life, moms begin to panic that they don't have enough. Why is the baby coming to me more? And I try to explain that this is part of their job description, which is to help your body increase supply. Their increased demand increases supply. So I think giving moms the tools to understand what is it kind of look like, feel like, sound like when a baby is feeding well helps them to feel empowered to kind of be the judge. I try to get moms away from timing the feeds in that if a mom says the baby was on the breast for 30 minutes, I always say, tell me more because what was the baby doing for 30 minutes? Were they sleeping? Were they chomping? Were they suckling? Or were they actually drinking at the breast? So really giving them the tools to understand, you know, again, what it looks like, feels like, sounds like when a baby is actually drinking at the breast and not just parked at the breast. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, you'll have conversations with other moms and I certainly did many times where it was like, oh, well, you know, I only feed one breast at a time because, you know, by the time they're done with one, oh, they're too, you know, they're too tired and they've fallen asleep and they won't make it to the second breast. How important is it to do both breasts in one feeding? Kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I think at the beginning, we always want to offer both breasts. We, you know, even if the baby seems sleepy, if mom takes the baby off the first breast and burps and kind of re-stimulates, especially in the first few days when they're a little sleepy and then offer that second to second breast, you know, it helps again, mom's milk supply and baby's intake. So there's less weight loss and mom gets better stimulation because most babies can be coaxed into that second breast. Now, sometimes once milk production is well-established, and mom may have a very robust, even borderline oversupply, some babies can get sufficient milk from one breast where they drink, 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 drink. The breast gets softer. The baby's totally relaxed and mom just simply can't get them to take the other breast. Now, in some cases, if a baby is slow weight gain, they can stop short of a full feed just because they don't have enough gas in their tank to continue the feed. So they take enough to quench their thirst and take the edge off their hunger, but then they just kind of run out of steam. And that can also happen with issues with tongue tie or tight jaw or tight neck where the baby just needs a break. And so the feeds are shorter and maybe only one breast. You know, again, those those kinds of situations, hopefully mom is staying in touch with either a lactation consultant or their pediatrician. I think what would really help a lot of moms get off to a good start is early and frequent contact with, again, skilled lactation care so that we can head problems off before they start. Mm -hmm. 
Now, a quick little break to tell you about one of my favorite bedding and loungewear brands, Cozy Earth. This episode is sponsored by Cozy Earth. The average person sleeps for eight hours per day, which means that an average person will sleep for 229,961 hours in their lifetime, or basically one third of their life. I have always been a big advocate in investing where you sleep. Let's start off with sheets. Cozy Earth bedding is made with premium 100% viscous from bamboo fabric and helps create the perfect sleeping temperature. They're comfortable and breathable, and they're great for sleeping year-round. Cozy Earth has developed and crafted high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth. Cozy Earth women's loungewear is crafted from the same breathable and luxurious material as their bedding, and they offer optimal comfort. All of their products are created via a direct supply chain and in ethical factories. Fun fact, Cozy Earth has even been featured on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row, and they have a 10-year warranty on all of their products. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. 35% off site-wide when you use the code Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 35% off. I'll place the link in my show notes as well. This episode is sponsored by KiwiCo. With a KiwiCo subscription, you're giving so much more than just a toy. These crates are a way to get your child involved with hands-on science, art, and geography projects delivered to your door every month. Kids love awaiting the crates, and they get really excited when they show up. We've received KiwiCo boxes over the past few years, and it's always a great way to connect with our children and watch them learn and have fun. I love seeing their reactions when they're able to build something and watch it come to life, and many kits allow them to collaborate together to create, and I love watching that happen as well. Their kits are age-based, and there is something for everyone. They've also had some seasonal and holiday-themed kits recently, which are on my list for next month. Give a hands-on crate this holiday season with KiwiCo. You can get your first month of any crate line free at kiwico.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's your first month free at K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. The link will also be placed in my show notes. The other thing I wanted to, to talk to you about, you said on day two, you know, they might do this like cluster feeding and that's more or less to increase your supply more than anything. But I, I did run into that same problem where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like they must be hungry because they, I, I've been feeding all day. You know, it's like you're not used to that cluster feeding. And so what I did personally was I was like, oh, I'm going to break out my pump. I'm going to try to. And then of course, you know, what happens after that is now you have this crazy oversupply. So is there ever an appropriate time? I, mean, I know this is going to vary very much person to person. But is there ever a, you know, a time that's appropriate to break out that pump and also pump in between your feedings with the baby? So the, I want to just back step back a little bit with pump, pumping in the early first few days can sometimes be challenging, especially for a first time mom, especially in the first few days when there's colostrum in the breast, because colostrum isn't removed easily with an electric pump from the breast in the first few days. And I see a lot of moms pump, say, for example, the baby was born a little bit early, like a 37 weeker, and they're a little bit sleepy. And mom is kind of panicking that the baby's not latching well, or for long periods of time, you know, certainly getting milk removal happening is important, but using an electric pump, which is frequently happens in the hospital, you know, um, 
a well-meaning nurse rolls in a, an electric pump and mom puts it on and she pumps for 20 minutes and she gets like three drops. And then she starts to panic that she has no milk. Now, what I try to explain to moms is it's not that you don't have milk. It's just that the electric pump is not very good at removing colostrum. Colostrum is a little thicker. It's a little stickier and it just is, does not respond. Another one of the things that I really cover and talk about in the prenatal classes is how to do hand expression. Hand expression is one of the, I think, one of the most important things that new moms can learn, not only to boost milk production, but it can help in cases of, you know, plugged milk ducts or things like that to use your hands to gently get milk moving. So, so learning hand expression can help. So reasons to pump in the beginning would be either mom's nipples got destroyed really quickly and she can't bear, bear to latch the baby. So start hand expressing, maybe use a gentle hand pump. I think again, when milk volume, the, the bigger milk volume is there, an electric pump certainly starts to work a lot better, but I've seen it over and over again where moms try to use an electric pump day one or day two, and they just feel awful because they think they don't have anything. And I've then walked into the room and helped a mom hand expressed and we can get, you know, eight or 10 milliliters of colostrum pretty easily. And the mom is shocked. She's like, I didn't know I had that. I was like, well, we put all this weight on these fancy pumps. You know, I'm, I'm like, really, when you, it comes down to it, it's, you know, a big chunk of plastic with a motor inside. And, you know, that's not as your body doesn't respond necessarily to that very well in the beginning is, you know, your body wants the the baby's mouth and it wants the mom's gaze to be looking at the baby. And oftentimes when we're using a pump in the first few days, there may be some stressor that's there, which can affect milk letdown because pumping can be hugely psychological. If a mom is told she needs to pump in the first couple days, usually I recommend hand expression, hand expression for her. And I try to, like said, like I said, teach that in the, the prenatal classes so that she feels empowered to do it and understands, Hey, I know what to do. I know what plan B is. I'm going to hand express. And actually I encourage moms to do a little hand expression after most feeds in the first couple days, because there is some research that shows that obviously increased milk removal is going to increase the onset increase the production and increase or speed up the onset of that initial jump in milk volume. So whether mom hand expresses a teaspoon after each feed and offers it to the baby, just that extra milk removal will help tell your body, oh, we need a little bit more and we need it faster. So that, that can be a really good way to help empower moms, give them some sense of agency and can do it in the case of a sleepy baby or sore nipples that happen kind of right out of the gate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk about undersupply. So what are, so what am I looking for? So we'll say we're a couple weeks out, you know, we're, we're one, two, three weeks into this. It's not just the first couple of days. We've kind of gotten through that. I'm having this inclination that my baby is not getting enough. Why do some women struggle to make enough milk and what can they do from there? Certainly milk production can be affected by a poor latch, right? And so if the baby's not latching well and mom's not receiving adequate stimulation, that can affect 
early milk production. You know, in some cases, there can be a physiologic reason or a medical condition that can contribute to slow or low milk production. Things like if the baby's born prematurely and is in NICU, or if a mom has gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, you know, is on medication, has hypothyroid, has PCOS, you know, hypothyroid, things like that, those things need to be addressed and considered if a mom is struggling with low production. Sometimes it's just a matter of let's work on this latch. Let's add a little pumping to the routine to help boost your production. And that's all it needs. It's not everything isn't like some big complex problem, but it again, it needs to be addressed and sooner rather than later. That's why I tell all the mommies that I do see for a prenatal class, come see me, you know, day four, day five, because it's so much easier to head problems off before they start or to kind of get them kind of corralled back in and to decrease the the likelihood that you might have, you know, issues long, longer term issues with milk supply or nipples that will take longer to heal or a baby that, you know, would struggle with weight gain. We don't want them struggling with weight gain. You know, a lot of times I do see those moms early, but sometimes I see a mom whose baby is six weeks old and she's been struggling with sore nipples for six weeks and a baby that, you know, will not gain weight, you know, at the appropriate rate. So again, early and frequent support is really just so, so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now on the same topic, but a little bit off nipple shields. So I wanted to quickly address this just because I was at least told and you can correct me or tell me that this was correct, but I used mine very sparingly. I obviously did need them when I had, you know, large lacerations or what have you on my nipples just for, you know, a a week at a time or so, because I was told that with the nipple shield, your baby is not able to get that like full suction. So actually your supply does take a hit in some cases just because of the nipple shield. And so kind of like a prolonged use. So I know there are moms who, who will use that nipple shield, you know, months at a time. Like, do you recommend that? Or do you recommend that they kind of wean off of it if possible? So sometimes nipple shields are given out like, you know, candy, you know, in the hospital uh, just because they they just say, okay, let's just put this on there rather than, again, that can be for many reasons, you know, poor training of the staff, short staffing, (laughs) where they don't have enough time to help, things like that. But, you know, there is that risk of getting lulled into the false sense of security that the baby's on. But again, going back to is the baby drinking with the nipple shield? And why were you given the shield in the first place? Now, for me personally, and I think most lactation consultants would agree, if a mom has nipple pain or lacerations, usually my first line isn't to give them a nipple shield is to say, how about we let your nipples heal and let's do some pumping and bottle feeding until they heal. You know, some women are, you know what, I figured out the latch and I'm seeing slow improvements every day and I don't want to pump. It's a pain in the neck, you know, and you know, that can happen, especially with moms that have had multiple children who are like, no, 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 I just, I got it now. And it's getting, it's getting better every day. And it's just so much easier to, to latch the baby than, you know, if that works for you. Yeah, it can work, but, but it does have the potential to dampen milk production if mom's not getting full stimulation and it can, sometimes, you know, make it more difficult for the baby to get full feeds. So again, 
be if you're using a shield and you need to use it longer term, talk to a lactation consultant for some guidance. And some some moms are able to just wean off it organically, you know, like literally they're holding the baby and they're like the nipple shields on the other side of the room and the baby's rooting. Oh, what the heck? Let's just try it right now. And, you know, sometimes it's the mom that gets very attached to it and gets nervous that I can't latch the baby without it. When in fact, the baby can, you just have to release that kind of attachment to it. And, and just, you know, when the baby's a couple weeks older, a couple weeks, bigger, bigger jaw, bigger mouth, you know, sometimes those problems or struggles you had initially may have melted away and you may find that you can use it. You can nurse just fine without it. Right. Right. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about oversupply as well? So I, was never somebody who had to deal with this. So I know literally nothing about oversupply. So someone would be telling me, oh my gosh, I have so much milk. I can save up. You know, I have like a freezer full of like all this milk. And I'm like, that's lovely. I wish, you know, but I know that, you know, it's, it's also really hard to have an oversupply. So if you're somebody that does have an oversupply, what are some things that you can do to manage that? Yeah. Well, I will say that, that I think Instagram is one of the biggest purporters of, you know, moms thinking or believing that they have to have a freezer full of milk in order to be a good breastfeeding mom. And again, nothing against the moms that are set, you know, showing pictures of all the milk they save because I know the work that goes into doing that. But many moms have asked me in the first week of life, like, I mean, they're literally four days postpartum. They say, how can I build my freezer stash? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, right now, right now, you just need to make enough for your baby. And that's it. Just enough. Maybe a little bit more, but you don't have to make so much more that you have a stash. So, you know, oversupply can be caused by the mom herself by overpumping. It can be, you know, a physiologic where there's no clear etiology of why it's happening. We just see the symptoms. And what does it look like? Baby coughs and chokes at the breast with a strong letdown. There's just tons of, you know, tons of milk. It's really obvious. Mom's breasts are very, very full. Baby is having a tr- you know, difficulty sustaining a latch or pulls off with letdown and is getting sprayed in the face. A baby's stools can be more watery. They can be explosive. They can sometimes even be green or foamy. And mom usually has a lot of issues, ongoing issues with inflammation or plugged milk ducts or mastitis. And it's just generally uncomfortable, drippy and leaky. So I usually tell the moms that are concerned that they don't have enough milk in their freezer. I said, I can guarantee you that's one of those Instagram versus reality things. You're going to see the freezer full of milk, but then you're going to see the mom chained to her pump or her baby choking at the breast or the baby being gassy. And, you know, there can be those unicorn situations where the baby's fine, mom's fine, and she loves it. And that's fine. That's great. You know, I never am one to tell someone exactly how to do something, but usually there's other things going on when you see that giant freezer stash full of milk. So, you know, if a mom wants to have some extra milk, which is also fine and practical because you want to, you know, take your breasts and leave the house once in a while. So, so having some milk available is helpful and, or going back to work, you want to have it. But usually I tell moms, you know, after a couple weeks, you're, you know, kind of getting into the groove of breastfeeding and you want to start getting a little bit of milk in the fridge or the freezer to do, you know, one or two pumps a day shouldn't throw you into hyper lactation, but you know, just, yeah, just not over pumping and not overdoing it. I find some moms are creating some oversupply because they're using a device. I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably have heard of it, the Haka. Oh um, yes. Every so I, many people suggested that to me and I never used it with all four. Yeah. I was like, eh. 
I'm not necessarily a fan of it because some moms use it because it creates constant pressure on the nipple. And so it's more of an active milk remover. And some moms will nurse the baby on one side and then put the haka on the other side to catch that milk. Cause again, the quest for the, the stash. And, and then when the baby goes to the second breast, you know, there's less readily available milk because the haka has just taken all that readily available milk. And so the baby gets a little bit less that time. I've, I've literally seen moms with babies that have slow weight gain and who are underweight. And I find out that they have like 200 ounces of breast milk in the freezer. I'm like, wait, what's going on? Well, that's a combination of like the four milk, hind milk thing too, right? I mean, that can kind of like mess, what does that kind of mess with things as far as like their weight gain and such or no? It it can actually, a lot of babies who have are, if their mother has hyperlactation, some babies can actually have very rapid weight gain. And so what happens is with hyperlactation, the there's kind of exponential growth of the the milk production. You know, on average, a baby that's by their by the time they're a month old, they need somewhere between like 28, 30, 32 ounces a day. You know, when a mom gets into hyperlactation, they're producing probably greater than like 36 or 37 ounces a day. I've worked with moms that are producing 80 or 90 ounces a day and are just insanely uncomfortable, you know. So the haka can contribute to oversupply if you're using it every single time to take to take out, you know, if you take out two or three extra ounces per feed times eight times a day, you've got close to another full day's worth of milk in one day. And while it, you know, will be nice for that freezer stash, you're have you're on the quest for it can certainly contribute to the other problems that I mentioned about plug ducts and baby difficulty with feeding and, and gassiness. And so, oh, we were saying that when when the milk production kind of increases exponentially, the the part that seems to increase at a more rapid rate is the kind of lower fat milk. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. you know. I, I mean, yeah. and, and there's a lot of conversation now that you know moms get so crazy about low fat milk, the the cream, the this, the that, you know, and we make like one milk, basically it's milk, but it's just the way that it's delivered. And sometimes the sticky fatty part of the milk can kind of cling to the, to the walls of the milk ducts and the, you know, more watery, low fat milk can kind of come racing through more quickly. Now, when babies latch to the breast, it's supposed to be more watery because they're thirsty and it's supposed to quench their thirst. I always tell moms, think of salad to dessert, like the way that we eat. Right. And so, and then as the feed progresses, it naturally, you know, gets higher and higher in fat as, as the feed progresses. And if a baby gets full on the more low fat milk, and when it's low fat, it's like, you know, maybe 19 calories an ounce or 18 calories an ounce or 20 calories an ounce, as opposed to the standard 22 calories an ounce. So calorically, it can be a little bit lower, but oftentimes what babies do is drink a lot more volume because they're not feeling full because there's less fat. In, in what they're drinking. So one thing I do with moms that do have hyperlactation is encourage them to do a gentle massage of their breasts before they start, before they latch the baby or pump to encourage, to kind of mix the milk up so that the baby can get access to that creamier milk. It'll be higher calorically. And so they may take slightly less volume because they'll feel full more quickly. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So- very briefly, saving milk for work. I know 
this is just this this hot topic that everyone's always talking about. Okay, well, I've I've managed to successfully start breastfeeding. We're in a good place, and I've heard some people, like you said, like the second week they're already okay. Let's let's start saving this stash. But you want to regulate. You want to make sure your milk is regulated for your baby before you start saving for work, right? So, like, when when would you suggest is an appropriate time to start saving milk for work? I know, obviously, in the United States, we are very unfortunate and just have to go back to work. I mean, literally right away, which is yeah horrible. And don't get me started on that, but because yeah. <laughs> that's you know the rest that's of the other, day. Uh, the that's rest a whole of other conversation. Day. Yeah, <laughs> when when can I you know safely start saving milk without you know with with preventing an oversupply. Like I obviously don't want to be in a situation where I'm go- then going to work and having to pump every hour, right? Because yeah. I have this oversupply now. So right, what right. do you think is appropriate? Again, I tell mom, these are guidelines, not rules. So, you know, it really is up to, first of all, it depends on how long the maternity leave is. Some moms get six weeks, eight weeks. There are some moms that get, you know, four months or six months if they have a very, you know, robust maternity leave and a company that really believes in supporting the mom. So, depending on how long your maternity leave is kind of contributes to the decision of when to start pumping. You know, some moms will start pumping earlier just because they want to have a little extra so that their partner can do a bottle once in a while, or if they know that they have to go to a baby shower or a doctor's appointment or something like that, you know, and they are going to be out of the house. Some moms like to start pumping a little bit sooner rather than later, but I think one or two pumps a day, Again, it depends on when you're going back to work. If you're not going back until four months, honestly, you don't really have to start until maybe three months. And if you pump a couple of ounces a day for a whole month, you know, that's 60 ounces, which is two full days worth of breast milk. And that that's even that's a that's even a lot. And I always remind moms that you know, they're going to always be bringing milk home to kind of replenish what you took out for the day before. So you don't need to have a month's worth of, uh, of milk to go back to work. Although you could just have one day, right? Because you you go to work, you pump all day and you bring it home, you use it the next day, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, having more than one day can sometimes be helpful because there are, you know, when moms go back to work, sometimes there can be a slight dip in production if they're stressed or tired, which of course they are, you know, so sometimes milk product and they're getting used to pumping at work. And if they're, if they're at work, you know, having that little extra can give moms some sense of having a safety net if there is that slight dip or if their, their period has returned sometimes for a few days, your production can dip a little bit. So yeah, but you don't, I think moms think they have to start way sooner and have way more than they think they, they do. Right. Right. Okay. So I did want to ask you this one last question and I'm just going to end it with the two questions I always ask my interviewees. So this question you had written into your questions that you wanted to be asked. And I I really would love to hear your answer to this. So what would adequate mom support look like in an ideal world? Adequate support for moms would include, start with good training for number one, pediatricians. I've talked to many pediatricians and have heard that they receive zero training on management of breastfeeding challenges <laughs> when they are in medical school. Literally, they they get no training. Isn't that and crazy? so it's like, crazy. First it's step crazy. to having a child, like you have to feed yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of, right. And of course, you know, pediatricians and all medical providers, you know, we know that, you know, 
office visits are not very long. And so it's often not a lot of time to spend to, you know, find out what's going on, you know? And so in many cases, moms are told to just start supplementing with formula, you know, in some cases that there is a reason and a need to do that, you know, but so, so good training for pediatricians, good training for staff, a number of lactation consultants available in the hospital. I've worked for years as a lactation consultant, and sometimes there's one lactation consultant and 20 moms on, on the floor. And moms hold so much hope on that the hospital lactation consultant is going to help me and be with me for every feed. And obviously one lactation consultant and 20 moms, it's just, you, the math doesn't work. So, um, I think hospitals need to treat lactation care, you know, as, as a really essential part of the, you know, the mother's mental health and physical health and the baby's health. You know, they treat it kind of like the music and sports, like in schools where they're, those are the first to get cut if the budgets get cut, you know, and, and really for moms, that's the thing that should remain constant and be, have a nice kind of beefy staff of people to really be able to spend the time with moms. And then early and frequent follow-up for moms, not just in the beginning, but kind of ongoing. I was running a new moms group yesterday and this mom said, you know, I'm just out of the fourth trimester, which is that, you know, three month period after birth, which there are still just major physiologic changes for baby and mom. And how this one mom said, I, I feel like we should identify the fifth trimester because she said at this point, everybody feels like, well, you're three months out, you should be back to normal and doing all the things. And I said, you know, I agree. I totally agree. I said, but it's it's not back to normal. It's, it's back to your new normal because your life is different. But just understanding that women need a lot more support than they are given. And, you know, obviously that from a federal level, just getting our act together with really putting their money where their mouth is as far as, you know, supporting women with longer maternity leaves so that they, cause in countries where women have longer maternity leaves, the breastfeeding rates are higher. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, like the, this fifth trimester thing wouldn't even be a thing in most of these other wealthy nations that we're often compared with. I mean, I just read this book. Oh gosh, why can't I think of the name of that off the top of my head? Anyway, it was about the Nordic theory of everything. And it just compares, you know, everything, maternity leave, childcare tax, everything compared to Scandinavian countries. And of course, you know, we're like 33rd or, you know, last basically in everything, including maternal and infant health. But, you know, it's like, I, I don't know what it's going to take to to make changes because I mean it, the way it's going right now it's just it's it's just so it's so hard you know I, I just it's discouraging I, it's very discouraging and, and I've you know I've been in this field you know doing this you know I started off as a labor and delivery nurse and postpartum nurse and then got certified as a hospital based lactation consultant and you know unfortunately 25 years later I'm still seeing a lot of the same issues that just goes on and on and on and it's like these you know it takes like a here, here's one thing that's really interesting. It's a little bit off topic, but with COVID, when moms were in the hospital because there were no visitors allowed, I had moms who had never experienced having visitors come to see them in the hospital. Parents said over and over and over again, I don't know how we could do this with visitors here. I, I just feel like it would be so overwhelming. And, you know, I feel like 
Yes. <laughs> you know, because that those early first few days when moms are feeling so vulnerable and overwhelmed, you know, and they've got, you know, visitors in the room and mom is, you know, nodding off and the baby needs to be fed, you know, that's, that's a whole other topic, but yeah, 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 um, yeah. No, but, but that's, I mean, anyway. it's, that's very interesting because I, I always, we didn't really have many visitors and I, and I always thought to myself like, okay, we're going to be home soon. Right. Like this is like two days, like yeah. let me enjoy my baby and, and get, you know, situated here it, it, yeah. to be able to, you know, entertain someone coming to sit. It's, I, it's so difficult, yeah, you know. Yeah, it turns it turns into like a cocktail party. Yeah, in the but again, it's like room. it's like the American expectation. I feel like. Okay, so let's end with the two questions that I always ask everybody. So the first question is: If you could give one piece of advice to the moms listening, what would it be? It can be about anything. I would say keep your your kind of family of, of other mothers close to you and, and seek support when you need to, when you're having, having a bad day, because motherhood can be hard. It's, it's, it's can be very hard, but having support from other women or family close to you can make it less difficult. So I think just having that support is, you know, I mean, I used to call my friends when my kids were little, my, my kids are adults. My son is 28. My daughter is 26. And I used to call my friends and say, I just had a really bad mom day. And she would say, tell me about it. And then I would, I would get off the phone feeling better because, you know, you hear that you're not alone and you're not in this vacuum. And, but just to understand that, you know, you're doing the best you can at the time. And you look back and think, oh, I could have done this, that, and the other thing differently. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they of say. Course. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And I will add to that, too. And I, I'm working on this blog post. And I, I don't have all the thoughts for it right now. But I know that I want to want to do this. It's, it's going to be about social media and how it creates this, like, faux sense of community and connection. And so I'd love to also just talk to the people listening and just say, you don't need to make this connection and and have this community. I mean, you certainly can. And and sure, you could do both. But I highly encourage to take this offline, especially, you know, if you're somebody that's like, okay, I'm a first time mom and all my all, the, all my friends are not moms yet. I don't have this connection outside. I know that it can be intimidating, but try to reach out to those in your community. I mean, I there's there's mom groups everywhere. And and now with with, you know, COVID still around, but things have calmed down as far as, you know, actually getting out and seeing people. And so I highly encourage just finding a mom group near you and you can find these through your pediatrician. You can find them through your lactation consultant, whoever you're seeing, just ask them and just actually being in person with other people and making that real connection or calling, you know, having these friends you have from across the country and calling them and having that, that connection is going to be so much more worthwhile to you and make you feel like you have this deep sense of just belonging than going online and making a connection with someone you don't know. So I just highly, highly encourage that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of new moms groups and I've facilitated them for 20, like the last 25 years. And I always, that's always part of my teaching is, okay, what are we doing about your mental health? And, you know, do you have a network of friends? And even if you do, if they have kids that are seven or eight years older than your baby, find, come to the group, meet other moms that are in the area there. They have babies the same age and you can discuss things that are going on that are more relevant to you rather than people who had babies seven or eight years ago who are like, Oh, it's no big deal. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and comparing yourself, you know, you end up right. comparing a lot right. when you're doing that online. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And then the last question is if you could make one meal for your family, that would be quick and easy that everyone would eat. What would it be? 
<laughs> my kids joke when they were little, their favorite meal, and it was easy for me, was uh, bean burritos. They loved bean burritos. And so I, well, because I lived in New, New Mexico for a while and their dad is from Texas, from El Paso. And so there's a lot of, you know, Southwestern food. And so always had a, you know, bag of flour tortillas and a couple cans of really good refried beans and some shredded cheese. And those could be made really, really quickly. And they love them. And yeah. so that's that's fast and easy. It is fast, fast and easy. Very fast and easy. Love so it. whatever whatever you like to put in Did there. Did you do Are different you- beans or just one? Like just black uh, beans just- I, We would do black beans. But they really liked refried beans. That was kind of oh, okay. their favorite. Or yeah. sometimes we, we would do tacos, but you know, still to this day, my daughter came out to see me from the city and I said, well, you want to go grab dinner? And she goes, well, you know what I want? I'm like, let me guess. <laughs> a burrito. <laughs> a burrito. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So yeah. It. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to chat with us. I mean, I feel like we only like chipped off the tip of the iceberg because honestly, breastfeeding, every time I talk about it, I just think of a million questions that I yeah. have, you know, I mean, there's so much to talk about when it comes to breastfeeding. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for, for giving us some insight today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And I I look forward to chatting again. Maybe we can dive into some of these other topics. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.